Welcome to this special podcast series from the National Institute for Health and Care Research about the future of research. You'll be hearing from five clinicians who are the current Thames Valley and South Midlands Clinical Research Network Fellows. We will be discussing the big research challenges facing healthcare. I'm Dr. Sanjay Ramakrishnan. I'm a research fellow in respiratory medicine at the University of Oxford. And over four episodes, I'll be asking my colleagues the tough questions. Are we getting trial participants who are representative of our diverse population? Is our research workforce ready for the future? Is it all going to be online? Join us to get answers to all these tough questions. The title of the podcast today is The Future of Research. Can research save the NHS? We know the NHS is continuing to shoulder the burden of COVID when it's trying to catch up with the care backlog. Is research a burden or a knight in shining armor? To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Mittal, Sophia and Tanya. To start with, could I just ask each of you to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Uh, my name's Dr. Mittal Shah. I'm an ophthalmology uh, registrar and I currently work at the Oxford Eye Hospital. And over the last few years, I've been involved in the running and delivery of a number of different clinical trials. And my recent interests focus on the use of retinal imaging and artificial intelligence in ophthalmology. Hi, um, my name is Sophia Sardeira. I am a clinical lecturer at the University of Oxford and a doctor at the John Radcliffe Hospital. I looked after pregnant women and I have a particular interest in maternal medicine. And I, I do research in uh, preeclampsia, which is a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. Hi, I'm Dr. Tanya Barron. I'm an emergency medicine consultant in Oxford and I've previously been a GP. Um, I'm involved in various trials within the emergency research and chair our local patient and public involvement group. My passion is to make research accessible to everybody and to ensure it's a normal part of patient care. Thank you for joining all three of you. I'm going to start with some facts. The last report looking at this from, uh, from the NHS is from 2018-2019. Supported clinical research activity generated about £2.7 billion of gross value added to the UK economy and estimated 47,500 full-time equivalent jobs. Direct income from the NHS, so this is directly money going to the NHS. Commercial clinical trials and the NHS delivering those generated £355 million of income to the NHS. And a total estimated cost saving was £28.6 million by where trial drugs were used instead of standard drugs. Knowing that, can the research save the NHS? Mittal? Yes, um, I think it can uh, and it will and it should. Um, you've kind of highlighted really, really clearly the financial benefit and the impact that research has, um, not only on the NHS but on the wider UK economy. Um, and in addition to that, we know that <clears throat> patients um, who are treated at hospitals where um, or hospitals or that are research active have better outcomes, have reduced mortality, um, and they also uh, tend to find that uh, if they're admitted to more research active hospitals, that their patients have more confidence in staff and tend to be better informed about um, their condition and, and any medications that they may be taking. Um, so I think definitely trying to increase um, research uh, within the NHS and increase research capacity within the NHS um, will have both financial, uh, positive financial implications, um, as well as implications or, or better outcomes for patient care. Yeah, we may be biased because we, all of us have a particular interest uh, 
in uh, research, but uh, I mean, our interest is actually the impact that it can have in the patient's lives, in the patient's outcomes. And, you know, through research, this is how you can evolve and improve care in, in a, it's all about the patients and and have a patient-centered and, and, and patient-centered approach so I th you know by um, improving the research and the research training that we give to allied alcap professionals we that will certainly come back to the NHS improving care to our population definitely COVID was a was a burden, is a, is a burden still, but it also showed what can be achieved if we really integrate research into into the standard care pathways. <coughs> the recovery study is is a great example. The the simple innovation of that was to make the study use existing medications, existing care systems, and randomizing at scale at many hospital centers centers that normally don't recruit actively for, for research studies. And that showed that we could deliver new treatments within months of a brand new disease coming into, into focus. 30% of all patients hospitalized for COVID-19 in the UK were randomized in a, in a, in a huge clinical trial, the recovery trial. So, what, at what cost is that, Tanya? What, you were there, you were on the front lines, you were holding the charge at the right of the front, you were there. At what cost was that? Did it cost you, your team, anything? What, what was achieved and lost by making research right there at the front? I think from our point of view, from within emergency medicine, it was really amazing to see. Um, I think that it was just it just basically so many people coordinated in the collaboration across different departments everybody the patient the clinician everybody had a vested interest in these trials and I think that was the first thing that made a big difference everybody wanted to do something to help everybody wanted to be involved um, and I think seeing that all happening and it happening so quickly and in fact I think Oxford was one of the highest recruiters across the whole of the UK for um, the recovery um, and actually it was really really great um, their department is research active um, but having the resources that we had put into the front line really at that time um, is probably not seen before and I think unfortunately it's probably something that's not sustainable in the long term because people obviously then other research studies were actually neglected um, to prioritise the COVID studies as, and probably rightly so, so at that time um, however that's not a long-term solution um, but it did make a huge difference and it was really a, a really impressive to see and it's really interesting um, speaking to our research nurses who were involved in that actually and and definitely something possibly for another podcast in the future is to hear the stories of how they felt themselves um, undertaking that research on very sick sick patients um, yeah but as I say on the whole I think it was a good experience yeah, I think it showed really, really well how when everybody has um, the same goal and when resources, I suppose, aren't limited, what can be achieved. Um, but as you kind of alluded to, 
the other side of that or the cost of that, um, the, the pandemic and the research was lots of other studies being stopped. So, for example, in ophthalmology, essentially everything came to a complete standstill from on the research front and our research nursing staff were redeployed as were a number of the other doctors um, <clears throat> to to other specialties. Um, so it's important to, to remember that um, one, I think when resource isn't an issue, we can do lo- lots. Uh, but now, particularly in a situation where we're coming out of the pandemic and we're faced with um, big backlogs um, within the NHS um, and potentially what impact that might have on research. And also, I think it's important there to think about actually how can research help us try to come out of that either through innovative ways of working um, and uh, or, or looking at new sort of treatments and, and new approaches that might might be useful and, and help them on a day-to-day basis. Definitely think from an ED point of view, our, the way we, for example, take consent has changed and that happened very quickly actually. And we have since then pretty much paperless consent and that's come because the digital platforms were quickly um, updated, I suppose. But yeah. We also learned, I think, like like Tang was saying, we learned to use other things well. Um, we learned how how data was collected. Uh, the data data form, if you remember, Tanya, for the recovery study, it was incredibly simple. You know, it's a website. You went there. You, there was maybe eight questions, and it 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 demystified and make it uncomplicated the whole idea of trials. But by doing that, by just joining a study, we have improved the care of that participant. Even if they were allocated for single or usual care, we actually improved usual care. In fact, there was a great paper that showed that people in the usual care arm of recovery were lived more than if you weren't in any study at all. And yes, that could be some selection bias to that, but I think that in itself is a good reason to, to, to perform more research in the NHS. Training is something Mattel brought up. So how, how we, we're going to have to re-spread out this, this army that we mobilized to deliver that. But what, what, what particular things that we, that we did then, and did those nurses and healthcare professionals and doctors from other areas motivate members of your teams to do more research? How does that link in with, with the CRN's goal of training more people to be research active? Any any experience with that? Uh, in I think it certainly made other um, sort of emergency medicine clinicians more aware of research as a thing. Whereas before, I think it had always been something that people did, but nobody really knew much about it. But I think when COVID struck, and actually we weren't as busy um, with our other normal patients at the time, um, it gave people sort of something else to do they felt that they were not just managing the patient who was unwell but also able to help or identify patients for trials where they had previously not been involved in research and I definitely think research is more there's more awareness about research within our department since then and and, and you know maybe that's it NHS is for the greater good but being part of research you know, gives you a very concrete greater good that you're working towards and that 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 is in itself you know a huge boost to our our we can say almost exhausted workforce, but it, it does give that that concrete thing to look at. So we all agree, research is valuable for the NHS. Um, why then? And this is, I'm just stirring the pot here. I'm making a controversial point. Should should consent be opted out? Should everyone who comes to the NHS, which is already working to the greater good, try and do even more for the greater good? What do we gain by making 
research consent opt-in, especially, yes, I know you'll talk about intervention studies, but especially for observational research, especially for data-driven research, what do we gain by making consent opt-in? Or what do we lose by making consent opt-out? Sophia? I think that uh, if you were using an anonymized, if you're using patient data, patients should be aware and should be able to to say, yes, I'm happy for my anonymized uh, data to be used. And I think this is something that would be quite important to set up in a large scale. So that is just routinely collected data that have that we that we have sitting on the on the our information systems and if we can use that data to make some interrogations in order to improve uh, service and departments to, to do proper research with it that would be great if you can create a system where the patients would um op be informed that this could happen and have the possibility of opting out, opting in, opting out. I think that could, could, could make a big difference that would, quite, that would increase substantially the, the, the possibilities. I think it's always important to make sure we don't forget that um, ultimately, in, for both observational and for um, interventional research as well, um, participants have the, the right and the option and they're able to um, sort of withdraw from studies at any point in time. Um, so I think while it's a noble cause to try to improve recruitment to research studies, um, make everybody, both staff and patients, more research aware, um, mustn't lose sight of the fact that um, currently, I mean, research is optional. Um, people should be informed prior to taking part in any studies as part of that informed consent process. Um, they have uh, an option to sort of decide if, they, if that's something they want to go ahead with or not. It was interesting because we actually brought a similar question to our PPI group um, about whether um, they would be happy to have um, some of their sort of old used blood that had been taken already for their medical care um, stored for future for future use um, and actually there was some quite a mixed response because I in my naivety expected that nobody would have any concerns about that but interestingly they felt that when they're presenting acutely they might not be thinking clearly might be unwell not able to to give their full consent at that time um, and also there was anxiety over if they said no um, whether they would get the same standard of care um, and then it went on to how would you assure people that their blood had been disposed of at the end of the day and how would you reassure people who didn't want to be involved that actually the um, samples wouldn't be used at all. Um, so I wonder if using consent as an opt-out, if it's planned in advance in the same way that we were talking about carrying donor cards and things, whether that might be a a useful way or having a registry I guess nowadays it seems we're paperless um, but having some kind of way that people are not having to make these decisions when they come in unexpectedly. No, I, was say, I think it's important um, to, to remember that especially in, in acute settings. Um, I mean I'm sure Tanya has more experience of this than I do but if someone's coming into hospital in an emergency they're unprepared or even if they're going in 
um, for, an, for a procedure, an operation or something, they're nervous um, and to sort of be thrust upon at the last moment um, with all this information to try to absorb that, digest it and decide is it something you want to take part in, um, <clears throat> it may not be the most appropriate time. Um, so, so I think certainly that's something that um, as researchers you need to be sensitive about um, to making sure that you're approaching past the, an appropriate time um, when they can actually can take this sort of information on board. And you, you mentioned the magic word at time. Um, it, it takes time, research. In fact, the most generous gift that our research participants give us is their time. Um, and you, you also said about if we made it routine, do the participants know that their visits are, going, are taking longer because we made it routine that they're part of research? Are we affecting their work? Are we affecting the likelihood of someone coming to your specialist service in Oxford from rural Gloucestershire because they feel like they wouldn't have the time to spend when you when they come here. How would we solve that? Do we, do we have any suggestions? How do, would we make sure we are not overburdening participants who don't already know they're doing this extra? I think here, yeah, I mean, information is key. Um, that's sort of similar to what Tanya's um, experience with her PPI group um, previously and their concerns about not knowing what's going to happen with their samples afterwards. Um, in this setting, um, participants or potential participants may not be aware of what exactly what does that involve. And I think in a future where research plays a much more integral role within um, routine or standard NHS care, everybody will be more informed. That's potential participants, um, healthcare staff, and actually knowing what might be expected and the kinds of things that might be expected. And I think the unexpected can always be more daunting for, for everyone. Um, so I think certainly one um, important thing to overcome to get to that point is, is getting people more informed about actually what it involves um, and, and what the potential benefits and the risks might be as well. So when they're coming in, it's not the first time they're necessarily having to think about that. And another example brought to me recently was about if we're making a routine, we shouldn't underestimate how special that is, how, how special it is that our patients or participants or members of the public are donating their time and themselves to, for research. And if we make a routine, we shouldn't get to a point where we take it for granted that people will sign up. You know, approaching someone you know, in the emergency department is one thing, but approaching even for planned operations should... should uh, should it be that should it be okay if if uh, I, I have an opinion on this, but should it be okay that if we if we approach the participant only on the day when we could have approached them in advance and had the time to think about whether or not they want to join a study, even if it's observational, is it is it ethical to leave it to the last minute something that we could have done earlier? So if you have, for example, someone's coming in for a, you know pregnancy is nine months, you can plan for something that's going to happen in nine months time, most of the time nine months. Um, is it okay to ask them to join a study on the day of their labor when they could have done that in advance? My experience is not working in, with patients in labor. It's quite difficult, is it? That will be similar to Tanya talking about of patients who come into the emergency ward. But luckily we have nine months to prepare and uh, the pregnancy are patients that we keep in a tight, follow up and we are able to to approach on, on several different times so although it's not ideal but i feel that we are in a better position than the emergency department with um, 
Tanya. And we can start giving patients um, the leaflets and they have the chance to think about it on the day or come back to us uh, later on in a, one or two days and we can always follow up. The experience that I get is that the um, pregnant women engage when when we ask about research and they, they're quite good in terms of participating. At the end of the day, you want to create strategies and opportunities so that um, research becomes a, a normal part of uh, clinical practice. And that's what we want. And that's how then we can improve the NHS as well. But actually to create those strategies is what it's going to take the time and effort. I think it's also important to say that um, <clears throat> using your example previously, Sanjay, of um, approaching participants who are coming in, or potential participants who are coming in for planned care, be that an operation or a clinic visit, um, <clears throat> one, it, I, all research still, um, particularly well, not only intervention, but some observational studies as well, will need to be um, uh, or go through the appropriate ethical checks and balances to make sure it's, it's ethically appropriate and sound. And as part of that, I think where you have an opportunity to approach somebody um, ahead of time rather than in the heat of the moment, um, I think the onus definitely is on, on the research team to try to, to try to do that where possible so that a potential participant has as much time um, and space to think about it and to talk to other people or other practitioners um, at their leisure. Yeah. No, and I think you focused, and there's an important thing you mentioned, Mittal. I mean, it may not be obvious for people who might be listening to this podcast, but every single uh, research study from the most simple one observational to the most complicated interventional study goes through a process of checks and uh, ethics uh, teams and is very scrutinized as to make sure that this, this happened. But... Um, um, what we're talking here about is the opportunity to make it more common and be in, embedded in normal clinical practice and, and, and be actually a part of just regular a regular encounter with the patient and thinking about research. And I think this is what we need to try to make it happen, make it more normal, more regular and part of normal clinical care. And how can we do that? And this is how we go into opt-in, opt-out, the use of regular, regularly collected data. And I think there's something, a lot to be gained with that. I was just going to say, actually, um, we, nobody ever likes talking about money. And I know you mentioned at the start about the money that's brought into the NHS from doing trials. Do participants or our public um, and patient members, are they aware of the money that comes into the NHS by them taking part in trials. That's a great point. Are we? I mean, we tell we tell our patients in ethics committee ethics documents and patient information leaflets if we are paying them directly. So if if the study if you join a complicated study, some studies will pay the participant, and we tell them that. But maybe it should be okay to tell us tell the information sheet to the participant. This is how you're benefiting not just you and the medical problem that we're solving, but also the NHS overall. Is it is I think it's okay. I think it should be mentioned. In fact, that's useful information when you're considering how your time is valued. Um, that's a great point. Uh, taking it back to you, Tanya, we talked about, about um, you know, the challenge. Yes, the onus is on the research team to do as much as possible as if we have the time to give the information. 
but you you are a successful researcher multiple studies lots of very acute research work you know i think you're the second highest recruiter for some studies in the country so the how do you do it how do you work around that in in this area where everybody who comes to the hospital has to come to the emergency department right or almost everyone unplanned care all comes through you how do you deal with that that problem and how do you make it routine in your care i think it is a very challenging environment to do research with an emergency department and i think the reason it's successful is because we have such an amazing team of research nurses um if it wasn't for them it would be impossible to to do studies within the department i think practical terms um we can't do two things at once i can't be clinical because the departments are just so busy and also research um, or recruit patients to research um, and so the most I think we can hope for while we're actually on shift is to sort of raise awareness amongst other people who are working and to sort of flag up any patients really who could potentially be recruited to our research nursing team. Um, and I think one of the challenges from a nursing point of view and um, I'm sure this is similar across the UK in emergency medicine is that our sort of peak presentations are uh, out of hours really so evenings and weekends um, and that in itself poses problems um, and so actually what we do is we're looking at expanding our research nurse numbers to cover later they already cover um, quite a lot of hours during the week and are now extending to cover weekends or some weekends as well and um, also to look at using sort of other people so thinking outside of the box so one of the reasons some of the COVID trials were so successful was because we used a lot of medical students so we had medical students um, seconded to us in ED during the pandemic as extra pairs of hands really and they got involved in research and recruited for us and um, and that's a sort of plan to uh, to look at how if they can be involved for more sort of other projects and things too um, and also whether we look at using our clinical support workers as well um, to start recruiting out of hours because the intensity of the work is just say, too much when you're actually on shift but actually the out of hours work is the where where all the patients are are coming in really and we want to make sure we can recruit them as well any any final thoughts from you, Sophia? No, I think we that's a very important point, and Tanya just highlighted this important point of having other people involved. You still think the research can save the NHS, Mattel, after our our conversation? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, despite my personal bias based on my sort of interest in research, I still generally think that research can save the NHS. We've heard. That it improves outcomes. We've heard that it, the positive financial impact it has, both on the NHS um, and on the wider uh, UK economy. Um, and I think one of the themes that we've talked about is um, we need to slowly try to engage a, a cultural shift um, to try to make it a, a more routine part of NHS care. And that's going to be both um, patients knowing more about research, what research might in, entail. So when they're approached, it's less of an unknown. Um, and also making sure that there's appropriate um, support for healthcare staff in terms of training um, so that they're in a better place to be able to help deliver research studies going forward. On that note, to all our listeners and uh, healthcare professionals or members of the public, if you 
have any thoughts on on research if you want to learn more for healthcare professionals please look into what training is available for you freely provided from your local clinical research networks in your area please think about what else we can do uh, to make research a routine part of nhs care thank you sophia Mattel, and tanya for joining me today in this podcast and thank you to all our listeners for listening to this podcast series thank you Thank you for listening to this special podcast series from the NIHR. If you are a member of the public interested in research, please visit the Be Part of Research website to search for studies near you that you can take part in. For health workers who want to find out more, please visit the NIHR Your Path in Research website to get started. If you have specific research training and research career-related questions, please speak to your local friendly NIHR Clinical Research Network.